Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash design matters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. This episode of Design Matters is part of a series featuring new voices in design, and Debbie Millman talks with Kelly Anderson about her new pop-up book and about her collaboration with They Might Be Giants. They said, well, you know, we need you to push it a little bit further. And so, <laughs> you know, my weird idea wasn't weird enough for them, which is really great. I think those are the exact kinds of clients you want to have. Here's Debbie Millman. If you like paper, you're going to love Kelly Anderson. She does things with paper that even paper didn't know it could do. Kelly is an artist and designer who pushes the material and digital worlds into forms and experiences that are fresh and head-scratchingly surprising. She joins me today to talk about what she's been drawing, photographing, cutting, printing, mapping, writing, and coding. Kelly, welcome back to Design Matters. I'm so flattered that you have me for a second time, Debbie. Absolutely. Well, for the last year, you've been working on your own independent projects as part of an Adobe Creative Residency, which allowed you complete independence on creative projects of your own choosing. How did that even happen? How does one get a residency like that? It definitely felt like winning the lottery. And um, like most things that feel like winning the lottery, it had a little bit to do with luck and I think a little bit to do with my own uh, credentials and and being able to handle such an experience. But um, my friends, Rena Tom and uh, Brian Boyer, ran the space in Brooklyn called Makeshift Society. And uh, Adobe was sponsoring a lecture series with uh, artists and designers in that space. It it was funny because I had had just returned from Japan and I had this project that I had been working on for a year that didn't look like much. Um, Like a lot of the things I do in paper require extensive prototyping before design, graphic design even gets applied to it. And so like 90% of the process is ugly and then cardboard with duct tape ugly. And so... I tried to explain to, to Rena and Brian um, how disappointing this talk would be, you know, because people are told that I'm a designer and yet I'm bringing in all of this ugly stuff. Uh, so I went and I, I presented and it was rough and um, Adobe was in the audience and they're like, this is the most brilliant thing we've ever seen. You have to be our creative resident. So that was a complete shock to me. What happened with the makeshift project that had ugly components? Well, um, those prototypes that I had shown at Makeshift Society were rough prototypes for a pop-up book that I've been working on for the last two years called This Book is a Planetarium. And um, it has a lot of moving parts because it's this uh, pop-up book full of functional things you can actually use. Of course, this paper planetarium that has apertures for the constellations of the night sky cut into it that you you turn on the flashlight on your iPhone and put it inside 
side. And so I was basically showing all of those things in a very rough state and then talking about the minutia of challenges I was dealing with. One of the inclusions in this book as a planetarium is a working pop-up guitar. That's, I think, aside from the planetarium, my favorite pop-up. Yeah, you know, the normal pass-fail standards for a pop-up book um, in in this mass production process is, like, when you open the page, does it rise up and does it rip apart? You know, if it doesn't, you know, rip apart, then you've succeeded. It really is like a, a unreasonable. I think unreasonable is the best way to put what I'm trying to do with a pop-up book because, you know, not only does it have to function structurally to pop up from a book, which is already kind of a magic trick in and of itself, but it actually has to work um, in the way that it says it's going to. And so, for example, with the guitar, uh, it has these little tiny nylon strings. And when you open the book, it stretches them taut. And if they're not taut enough, then it's not a satisfying playing experience because they're not musical. They so, won't be in tune, exactly. which is the whole point of the strings and, exactly. the, and the tension. Yeah. You know, I went into it thinking that I would be able to tell them that they should tie, you know, the first string tight enough to be like an A and then the next one tight enough to be an E, you know, so that I could specify musical notes. You're kidding, notes. right? You're kidding? Well, you this expected is, this in, to just happen? In my mind, that's <laughs> totally reasonable because that's how guitars work. Um, but, you know, this is a completely foreign concept to um, the mass publishing industry. And so um, basically my pass-fail now is it has to be musical. Like it has to make a pleasing musical sound when you strum it. If it flops there and sounds like bassy and, you know... That's not going to work. Um, but yeah, that's why that's why it's taking so long to come out because I'm incredibly picky, and um, it's really great of the publisher that they're they're acquiescing to my pickiness because I think it really matters. Um, you know, I, I think that there's the potential for a lot of these very low-fi, pared-down encounters with paper to be kind of a revelation to people that paper can actually uh, perform in these ways. And um, then on each spread, it also tells people why it does that, you know, so it ties it back to the, you know, structural scientific concept that, you know, the reason you're hearing sound from these strings is because of vibration, you know, that sound is like really like touch at a distance, um, which... I, I, when I learned that, like it kind of changed my world and I walked around looking at everything differently and thinking about the, the sound of cars passing me differently. And it, I think it just enriches your experience as like a physical being in this world, uh, seeing those things. And so it's important that it works and not be a disappointment. <laughs> Absolutely. Kelly, last year I interviewed you live at the Northside Festival in Brooklyn before the residency was beginning, and now here it is after. And so this entire experience has happened. Did it go the way you expected it to go? No, not at all, uh, which is fine. You know, I definitely thought that, you know, the Planetarium book would be be out by now. And in fact, my my mom is very angry at me uh, that it's not out because now she has to come up with different Christmas presents <laughs> to give people. Um, but, you know, it's it's definitely done now and it's, it's coming out next year. So that feels good. It feels good to be secure in that certainty. But, 
I've mostly been working on translating the wedding invitation that I made for my friends Mike and Karen. Uh, I think it was five years ago now. It was a paper record player wedding invitation into a reliable pop-up form that is a joy to use. So I've been I've been working on that and prototyping that a whole lot. And I have a show opening in uh, San Francisco at Mule Gallery November 4th. And I, I've chosen to sort of structure the show around this idea of rotary motion. And so it's called Around and Around. And it's all about different interpretations of that theme of rotation. And so I have a vovel in the show. Um, I have these lenticular pieces that you have to like walk around to understand. And I'm showing prototypes of, of this record player, which I'm really excited about. Over this last year, you traveled to 11 cities, stood on a stage and said words. You've written that, needless to say, you got over your stage fright. How did you do that? Well, you know, they say that there's a sink or swim instinct, and I I guess I just swam. And honestly, I've always been like a very... um, touch person. Like, I I learn by doing things, not by explaining things. Um, That's been my history. And so it was, you know, sort of an odd fit for me to start doing all of this public speaking. But um, it's really good, actually, because it keeps me accountable to my ideas. Because, you know, a lot of times you're sort of in this tunnel of working. And, um, you know, if you fail to step back and say, like, what are my motivations for doing this? And like, what is its effect in the world? And why is this important? And how does it, you know, attach to other ideas in history? Then you sort of risk losing track of the plot in a way. And so um, being able to have that invitation to put words into to thoughts that go along with my projects has really helped me evolve the work faster, I think. It's been really good. You stated on your blog that it has been a great year, and I'd like to talk about some of the projects you undertook, but also ask you some questions about some of the things you've written about. You stated, if handed the freedom to make anything, what would you make? Is a lovely riddle with intimidating vastness built into it to determine how to best make use of such a wide open opportunity, you had to solve for it in reverse. And you asked yourself, what is missing from this world that only you could see? What did you discover? Well, it was an economic riddle to solve, honestly, because. Um, I keep notebooks and journals and sketchbooks like a lot of other creative people. Um, And it's basically a repository for ideas that I want to do before I die. (laughs) And um, that sounds very morbid. It's an idea bucket list. Exactly. Um, So I think, you know, a lot of people keep these. And then when a client or a friend comes along and they say, I have this problem, I want you to make something for it then I can pull out that list and see, like, well, you know, I've just been dying to make um, a flexagon card, you know, and I think it would be great for this because it's a repeating structure and you have this problem that you want to solve that's about a repeating process. And I can kind of match my ambitions with this this task I've been asked to solve. And so, you know, I, I basically went to my bucket list of ideas and thought, what do I have here that's 
no one's going to ask for. Like, there's never going to be um, a client that's going to pay me to do it. Uh, there's there's never a better time than now to do it. So um, I was just basically looking for those projects that seemed so uniquely Kelly and kind of bizarre, but, you know, still made sense and do those. I read about the thought experiment you undertook in order to decide what kinds of projects to work on, and you came up with the following list of questions, and I'd like to share them with our listeners. Which projects stand little chance of ever being funded by client work? Which projects do I just know will be awesome but are too left field for anyone to actively request them? What perspectives of mine are sufficiently unique that they risk going unvoiced if I don't step up and represent? And if a project seemed like it would get done by someone else eventually, you crossed it off your list. Give us one example of a project you crossed off your list that had a sort of Kelly Anderson-ness to it, but you thought somebody else might get there first. You know, it was definitely like the weirder things, like, you know, trying to see if I could rebuild the Eames's powers of 10 from found images on the internet. Like, that was something that, <laughs> like, I don't think anyone else would have come up with um, because it's crazy and it took forever. Um, and it, the result is pretty remarkable. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Where did you get the, the far, far, far out space images from? Those came from NASA. And in fact, I had to stop um, at the Earth from outer space because there's not enough images from the Earth to the outer reaches of space to fill in. You know, like, if you want a picture of the Milky Way galaxy, there's there's a few in existence. It's not like, um, you know, pictures of the city of Chicago or pictures <laughs> of hands on a stomach, uh, which are a lot easier to find. But, um, yeah, that was a really, that was a really fun experiment because it was kind of all about, like, well, what is the resolution of this animation that I'm making? Like, is it adequate that people will be able to follow it? And I found that the answer was yes, but there's still areas in it that are choppy. Um, and so I'm thinking, like, maybe I should redo this experiment in, like, 10 years and, uh, you know, see if the animation is a little bit smoother as there are more and more images put on the Internet. You also documented a list of unusual accomplishments I'd like to ask you about. For example, you discovered that talking to random people at tech conventions about paper and pinhole photography is shockingly the most fun thing ever. And my question is, really? Yeah, it was <laughs> surprising. Like, I, um, during my residency, I, I came up with this paper camera. So it's like a, a functioning pinhole camera that's made out of a single sheet of paper. It's very elaborately folded. And um, Adobe, being a, a tech company with a conference about tech, uh, has this expo area. Um, it's called Adobe Max is the conference. And um, all of the other booths in the area were like, you know, the latest technology in 3D printing and, uh, you know, the latest technology in VR and stuff. And, you know, they said, here's a booth for you. And I had this paper camera. And we took pictures of 900 people with this paper camera and, you know, handed them their photo. And I, I think, you know, half of them wanted to stick around and argue with me because they were so sure it was a trick. Uh, you know, they just thought like, oh, there must be like a tiny digital camera hiding inside this paper thing. And then I was like, no, actually, light does that, you know. And so that, that was fun because it felt like 
this is a real intervention, you know, that we've become <laughs> so untethered from physical reality that we forget that things can do magical things uh, just by virtue of their structure, um, that things don't necessarily have to be programmed in a digital way that's very opaque. You know, things can be program mechanically and structurally and still do things, which is which is really it's cool. It's a big shock to people, right? <laughs> it was. <laughs> you also discovered that by studying vast scale, you can discover small, specific laws of human nature. And that sounded really fascinating to me. What What do you mean by that? Okay, well, this actually relates to the Powers of Ten flipbook, which I, I, I don't know if I explained this adequately, but um, I remade the Ames's Powers of Ten, which is a short film about scale in the universe, um, using only found images from the internet. And so every frame in their short film I replaced with something I found on Google Image Search. But, you know, basically that project was an experiment to see, you know, where I could find the frames and where I couldn't. Um, And it was a little bit about feeling out, like, how big the internet was. Because, you know, people say things like, that are probably true, that 1.9 billion images are uploaded to the internet every single week. And so it just seems like if I want any image of anything doing anything in any sort of position, I should be able to find that. And so this was basically an exercise to see if that was was true. And um, it was really interesting to see where the bulb patches were, you know, where it was really hard to find things. Um, for example, um, it's really hard to find a picture of a single picnic blanket in the park, um, you know, because basically, you know, if it's a nice day in New York City, there's you know, zero picnic blankets on the park, and then there's 500, you know. Um, It's that binary. There's never one person who realizes, like, oh, it's a nice day. I'm going to sit in the middle of the grass. And so it was actually pretty challenging to find uh, those frames. And I I did cheat a little bit. I had to Photoshop out some other picnic blankets because there was only one in the Eameses. Now, you also discovered that there is an inverse relationship between control and curiosity, and you need to cede control if you wish to observe things outside of your own head. So are you a control freak? Yeah, I guess as a designer, I am a control freak because I care about details. And I think uh, the degree that you care about details means that you're a control freak. So what is that inverse relationship between control and curiosity? I wasn't sure what you meant by that. Well, I mean, if you if you control everything in your environment, then there there's little room to be surprised. Um, and I, I feel like this is sort of a condition or problem with our digital age. Um, there was recently this fantastic essay in the New York Times Magazine that was a, a letter of recommendation on windows and having true windows uh, to the outside world. Um, you know, because these these little boxes that we have on our in our digital experiences, you know, our iPads and iPhones, it's great because it's really easy to find information, but it's it's really hard to stumble upon something that you completely didn't expect, something out of left field. In the way, if you, you know, sit there in front of your window and look out, you have no clue, no control of what's happening. And so, um, you know, I, 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 in this uh, year of having full say over exactly what I worked on without uh, clients bringing surprise or, you know, having to limit myself in any way, had to build in these experiments where I, I ceded control a little bit. Did you turn down a lot of work? 
you know, I, I, I turned down a little bit of work, but um, nothing that exciting. Um, they Might Be Giants approached me to make a music video, and that's, that's client work, technically. But uh, I also love them as a band and was able to justify it as a personal project. So, um. But how do you turn off the spigot to being asked by clients to do work? If you're suddenly now only doing personal creative projects, what happens to all those other requests that come in? I guess that's kind of a problem with being a creative person, right? I think everyone struggles with this because you want to work on your own projects and then you also want to be a part of the world and make things for restaurants and rock bands and, you know, that that's fun. And so it, it is a, a tricky balance. But um, I, I got lucky that Adobe approached me as I was basically all consumed with these pop-up book projects. And so there was already like a natural turn that was happening where I was going towards this self-initiated work. And um, then, you know, that kind of sealed the deal. But, you know, I, I, I do some work for um, New York City institutions um, like Momofuku and uh, Russ and Daughters. And, you know, I, I, I did sneak in a little bit of work for them, you know, because people need their menus updated and it was my baby. Like I didn't want anyone else to mess it up. (laughs) The last discovery that I want to talk to you about was the notion that the thumbnail design world and long formville, as you put it, can coexist. In fact, this is what design is good for. And that seems to really underline or solidify the notion that in order to keep curiosity alive, you do have to cede control. Um, But how did you discover that? I discovered that basically through making projects that couldn't be summed up in a thumbnail. (laughs) And so, you know, some of the work I make translates really well to Instagram or translates really well into being a photograph on Twitter, but not everything does. And, um, you know, I find myself... Uh, writing about my projects at all of these varying scales. You know, there's the one-sentence Instagram blurb and the, you know, 140-character Twitter version of it. Those all have to be an adequate description of the work that leads people into what is usually a much longer-form idea about process and context. So I've, I've been... You know, I, I feel like this is done. It's just not built yet. Um, but I've desi- redesigned my portfolio site to work on a variety of scales, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's slider-based. and so What does you, that mean? Well, it, basically, you know, normally you navigate uh, a designer's portfolio site by clicking on thumbnails and then going into whatever they determine to be like an adequately long-form version. So some people have one paragraph and then some crazy people like me write pages and pages about the entire process. Um, and so I've designed a portfolio site where, you know, you you come to the normal thumbnail page, but then there's a slider and you can slide that to expand or contract like the context around the project. And so, you know, Zoom level one is a couple sentences about each piece of work, but then you can turn the slider all the way up to the right-hand side and get the long version of it. And so, you know, I just kind of feel like this is how the internet works, that we're interacting with content on a variety of scales and all of this are, are, you know, 
rewriting our little blurbs to be like the long version, the short version, and the really short version. And so I thought I'd formalize that into a portfolio site. You, I imagine, will be showing a lot of the process of the unfinished pieces. And I know that you've stated that the internet seems to bend towards finished, but there does seem to be this growing curiosity for process, for what did the original sketch look like? Was it on a napkin? Was it a drawing on a tablet? What was that origination of the idea? And do you plan to include that kind of work? Yeah, I do. I I benefit immensely from people sharing their process online. So, you know, the Instructables as well as the blog posts as well as the Medium articles are just so useful. Um, I mean, they're useful in terms of sort of people understanding what the work is about. Uh, but it's also just really useful to, to help people take that next step. Um, you know, a lot of times when I'm trying to solve a problem, like right now for this um, gallery show in San Francisco, I have to do some electrical work. Like I'm dealing with motors and wires and stuff. And this is something that like, you know, I have no formal training as an electrician or whatever, and I'm trying not Yet. to electrocute myself. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm really, I, I benefit and I think everyone benefits immensely from this uh, generosity of information online. And I, I, I feel like as a creative person, it's, it's my duty in a sense to uh, show how the sausage was made so other people can make more sausage. Well, you suggest that writing it all down makes it more accessible, both to yourself and to others. You sort of justify what it is you've done. I feel like teaching does that, too. You you must challenge yourself to face whether or not what you're saying or teaching or making is real, is true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, Maria Popova has this this whole notion of um, creating a breadcrumb trail of the information you found on the Internet through, you know, linking and giving credit. You know, that's really important, too. And so not only like showing the, the process, you know, the physical process by which the work was made, but also, you know, taking the time to understand where the idea came from, you know. Um, that this is an homage to the Eameses or, you know, you saw X, Y, and Z portfolio site. Like, if you're a creative person working today, you know that no idea comes out of thin air, that, you know, it is this process of combining things and learning from things and being inspired here and, you know, and, and taking inspiration from somewhere else. And so I think being honest about that, like, you know, it could potentially, like, open up a whole world of information for someone else. And, um, you know, I think in our, our hearts of hearts, we all know that we've benefited from other people doing that. And so I think it's good to pay it forward and be transparent about what you make. I want to talk about some of the projects that you did, aside from Powers of Ten, your version of Powers of Ten. And you did a project that was born out of your desire to cede a bit of control of your work. Do you know which project I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Which one? Made with rules? Yes. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) So can you describe it? Talk about this project, this extraordinary, mind-blowing project of yours. Oh, thanks. Um, Yeah, I've kind of abandoned it for the moment, but I'm going to come back to it. Um, So I I wanted to create a project that I could work on quickly. Because a lot of these things that I work on, like this book is a planetarium, is taking forever. And so I wanted something that I could basically dream up in the morning and have done by night. And so I came up with this experimental kind of generative project called Made with Rules, where I would 
design a rule, um, for example, you know, build paper boxes at varying heights depending on the data that you get from speed traffic on the New York Department of Transportation site. And so I'd basically have some concept for what the shape of the work would be, but then its actual execution would be determined by factors outside of myself, um, which is a really, really good way to make decisions quickly. And, you know, there's a long history of this kind of generative work in in art history as well as as design history. You know, you can look back to like Bridget Riley, an op artist. Um, and, you know, Sol Witt does this a lot. I think he's, he's the one that most people think of uh, as doing this. And so, you know, in a sense, I was um, taking the methods of, of, of those artists from art history and applying it to paper design work. You invented the rules, gathered the data, and then combined that to create a composition of sorts. Because you were posting all of this on Instagram, were you getting rules submitted from other people to try to do this this way or this that way? You know, no one no one did that. That's a really great idea because sometimes I would be like, well, what's the rule going to be today? And I had no clue. So I wish that happened. But um, Maybe that's the way you can reboot it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to hate me for this. Well, you know, it was funny because um, actually just life kind of inspired it in this weird way. Um, because, you know, for example, after... I think it was Labor Day weekend. Um, you know, I there was a, it was really noisy outside of my apartment, and you know, so I was thinking of all of these parties that were happening around town. And you know, when I was faced with the made made with rules I wanted to make on that Monday morning, I was like, I wonder how many noise complaints three one one got over the weekend. And so I was able to like look at that data, which they where do they, you find that? Do they put that up on open data? Yeah, New York City has great open data. And so, um, you know, a lot of the observations I was making was about the city and then I could go back and like check the data. You've written that some days you are convinced that creative work is just a vehicle to transmit enthusiasm from one person to another. And I think that is entirely evident in the music video you created for the band, They Might Be Giants. Can you talk about how that project came about? There's a really interesting backstory to how it even came to you and um, and the whole notion of the band's dial-a-song service. Which I've talked to John Flansberg about on this show, by the way. Oh, I've listened to it. <laughs> I'm a fan of both of yours. Um, I got an email from John Flansberg. Just out of the blue. He saw your work, was a fan. He's like, hey, Kells, let's yeah, do this. I think I was like sitting on the couch with my laptop um, watching some Louis C.K. comedy thing or something. And I said, you'll never guess who emailed me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was John Flansburg. And um, he had gotten my information uh, through Tiny Bop, uh, who I've, I've done stop motion paper animations from before. And um, one of one of their designers, Melissa, has done album art for him. And so it's sort of like a friend of a friend thing. And, you know, They Might Be Giants had this very strange song uh, called Long White Beard. And in their typical fashion, uh, it's a song about confusing being awake and being asleep. And so it's about this sort of moment where dream is sort of blending into breakfast 
Uh, and so there's there's a, a lot of talk of of waking up uh, and finding that you have this this long white beard and sort of this feminist thing because Robin Goldwasser is singing it. It's, it's a very interesting song, but um, we decided to make breakfast cereal boxes very strange. And so we brought uh, Greek mythology and, and Zeus to all of these cereal boxes. And so we have like Zeus Krispies and Zeusy Puffs and you know it's just it's ridiculous where all of the normal characters from the cereal boxes are replaced with um, with Zeus so it was really fun. So I know you proposed a surrealist stop motion video culminating in Busby Berkeley-esque dance numbers performed by breakfast cereal. Was this how you proposed the video to the Johns? Yeah and they said yes. <laughs> Because <laughs> they're adventurous people. Um, in fact, they're so adventurous that they said, well, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of uh, Busby Berkeley referenced in music videos. We need you to push it a little bit further. And so, you know, my weird idea wasn't weird enough for them, which is really great. I think those are the exact kinds of clients you want to have. Um, when they make you even be weirder. Exactly. We're like, you could take this a little bit further. And so we did. We went pretty far with it. <laughs> and what's with the orange hands? Why did you feature somebody's? So, so it had a sort of Michel Gondry type of view of the the viewer. So you see what the viewer is actually supposed to be seeing through the eyes, right? Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Um, And, but yet all you see of the character are these orange hands. So what made you decide to to do orange hands? You know, the orange hands, um, it it felt very, they might be giants in a way that I can't really explain, but um, it also avoided this problem of the first person being a specific race or a specific gender um, we wanted it to feel like it could be anyone so the viewer could very easily like put themselves in in the shoes of this this person the last thing I want to ask you about Kelly is something that you've been writing about and that is the notion of advice when asked what kind of advice you would give others you answered If I was pressed, the advice I would give is that people should try to understand the context and importance of their work. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. What does it all really mean? Well, you know, I I think that, you know, when you make work and and put it out in the world, um, you know, you have the sense that it's yours. But, you know, the, the way that we as human beings share information is by talking about it and by writing about it. And so like even the most visual work has this verbal component. And, um, you know, I I really want to encourage more visual people to write about their work because, you know, if if you don't, like if you don't do it, someone else is going to interpret it for you. And so um, if you really want to own your work, if you understand the full depth and context of it, and get upset when people misinterpret your work, well, you know, it's kind of your job to put that out there. Um, And so I think that that's really um, the value in writing about your work. You know, one, you're you're sharing ideas and you're leaving this breadcrumb trail that people can mine uh, for content and for context and for history. Uh, But, you know, you're you're also, you're completing the process. You know, it's just a reality that our culture is very text-based and verbal. So it's important. 
Kelly, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters again, and congratulations on your wonderful and productive year. I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. You can learn more about Kelly Anderson on her website, kellyanderson.com, and from her portfolio on behance.net. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash design matters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance from Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store.